Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for, well, at least another hour of power here on, uh, well, YouTube, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever good podcasts are sold. And you can see I am welcoming me back, my good friend, Cyprian Ivanov. Hey, Cyprian. And welcome to the golden age of heck. That's right. That is right. We are going to be talking today. We are continuing our discussion about the craziness of Scientology's organizational nonsense and chaotic madness that goes on behind the scenes. And a lot of the Hubbard policies and ideas and, and concepts he had that sort of inform and feed this craziness and make it as crazy as it is. And um, it, we delayed this. I was going to do this last week. We were going to do this last week, but my uh, uni studies got in the way, and I, my head's been really deep in other stuff than Scientology for the last few weeks because I've been, you know, on, on crunch time getting some assignments done. But um, but I had a conversation with uh, Cyprian a few weeks ago, and it and it dawned on me that there's something that we could and should talk about that I think you guys out there are going to find a little fascinating and a little freaky and a little crazy. And maybe um, maybe this can serve as a little, uh, you know, distraction from the crazy that's going on in the world at large. You know, we're still in the middle of this pandemic and still in the middle of a bunch of other crap. And, and it can get a little doom and gloom and, and a little awful sometimes to look at all that. But... Um, but if we kind of keep in mind that, you know, if we can survive the crazy of Scientology, maybe we can survive the crazy of this, <laughs> you know, and maybe there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I like to think so. I like to kind of put that there uh, just for my own sanity and stuff and uh, and see where it goes. I, I first I wanted to ask you, Cyprian, because I um, I sent you some lectures. I sent you some transcripts of some of some Hubbard lectures that are not technical lectures about how to do auditing or how the mind works. Instead, these are lectures that Hubbard gave to executives and executives in training to teach them how to be Scientology administrators and leaders and people who are going to run his organizations. And so I'm going to ask you now, and I sent the highest level lectures, like the latest, greatest stuff from 1971 this was the la this was the period where hubbard sort of formulated his model of how administration and executives should do their executing and uh and i'm curious you know from just a raw here's these lectures with almost no context except here's what they kind of are what was your take on on hubbard's on on what he had to say. I'm trying to be polite here, <laughs> but <laughs> the the analytical problems with Scientology are reflected in all the other endeavors that Scientology tries to undertake, including organizational management. When I read uh part of the uh establishment officer series i was just flabbergasted at the vagueness the lack of clarity of what these positions were supposed to be uh 
for all the charts in Scientology, I couldn't figure out any org chart there. It was no clear duties. You're talking about DevT as if this was some clear concept instead of a characterization that has to be made after the fact. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense. It's not specific enough to give any real guidance to people. That's exactly right. And I am intrigued by your reaction to it. And we discussed this very briefly before I just hit record and we started going here today. But I was, I'm intrigued by this because the things that you're saying are the same things that executives in training will say in a more subtle version or a more roundabout way, because you can't be so openly hostile towards Hubbard when you're in Scientology, doing Scientology, you're trying, you know, you, you take the onus of the, of the responsibility on yourself as a Scientologist and executive in training. Oh, there must be something about this I don't get, because this doesn't make sense to me, is basically the, the, the most distilled down version of what I ran into as a course room supervisor training people. And I trained a lot of people over the years on these lectures, on this material. And this is what they would uniformly say. And as a supervisor, it wasn't my job in Scientology to know the material so that I could explain it to people. It was my job to find their misunderstood words, right? Or find what they didn't get. And Yet, over the years of going over and over and over the material yourself as a supervisor or as a word clearer, you start understanding, you know, what Hubbard's talking about. And, um, and this was an area which was never clear, which never clarified. Even though I worked with people over and over again, this continued to remain a bit of a morass. And I learned... Oh, again, over the years of Scientology, that um, that people who had done this training came away with it very confused and unable to implement the system that Hubbard had sort of invented to run his organizations. And I don't just mean the organizing board, which is simple enough to understand if you can, you know, just kind of read and look at it. I'm talking about higher level things like what is called the prod org esto system okay this is a thing in scientology it is called the prod org esto system the product officer prod is product officer org is organizing officer and esto is establishing officer so you have three you have this little triumvirate this little this little triad of the product officer, the organizing officer, and the ESTO, or the establishment officer. And these three guys are supposed to work in tandem to get areas of an organization to produce. So the head of the organization, the executive director, could be the product officer. He's the guy whose job it is to demand products occur, get products done, get them done, right? Get these course completions done get these well-done auditing hours up, get more people in the house, get more people in the door, get more testing being done, get more books being sold. It's all about numbers and products. And in the world of Scientology, selling a book or getting a person through a course is a product. 
you've produced something as a staff member. That's the idea. So the product officer is the guy, you know, with the cattle prod behind you, making you get your products. Okay, that's the idea. And the organizing officer is the guy who runs around organizing things so the production can occur. And this is where things get loosey-goosey because you're like, okay, how does he fit into this? So does he come before or after the product officer comes along? And what happens when the product officer goes to another area and the org officer is supposed to chase him and, and try to organize things? And organizing takes days. Demanding products takes seconds. So how is this how is this relationship supposed to work in terms of the timing? It doesn't it, you know it's weird. And then you have this establishment officer and the esto or establishment officer is the guy who is supposed to be running ahead of both of those other guys and establishing the division or establishing the organization so that you have somebody to demand products from and they have the help they need to be able to get their product. So the establishment officer is sort of this guy who's supposed to hire people and train them and get them on their job. And this is a function that takes months. So the timing of these three things is all out of whack. And that is one of the first things you run into in trying to set this up and make it happen. So... Did I just explain it in such a way that it made a bit more sense to you than how Hubbard explained a it? A bit more sense. Yeah. Uh, it's still... It's still weird. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really gel. It doesn't really jive. It's a system that Hubbard invented in his head, and it doesn't really work in the real world. He never really ran it on the ship that way. He never really had a live proof of, of concept of this whole idea but he insisted that this is how organizations are supposed to run anyway. And if you're confused at all by what I just explained, imagine if you tried to get Hubbard to explain it to you, it's actually 20 times worse, right? Because what I just explained is, is sort of what I ended up walking away from understanding all of this after working with you know these executives and training for years trying to sort all this stuff out. So... The point of all of this, I guess, is the reason I'm bringing this up is because um, I want people to know that the reason Scientology is so haphazard and so chaotic and such a madhouse is because that is what it really is like inside the organization. <laughs> it's crazy working in there, you know, trying to make this stuff work. Uh, and I'd like to point out that systems can tend organizations can be chaotic as part of normal rational life yeah and they can be chaotic because of chaotic people yes and they can be chaotic because of well bad ideas yes. and one of the important things of delving into the details of how these things work is so you can figure out how much of this is the chaotic nature of just life in general how much of it is people who are amateurs thrown into a position that they don't have the life experience to analyze and how much of it is Scientology's ideas are unrealistic at best. Exactly. And I, I think it's that last bit I'll, I'll be harping on mostly in this podcast today because they are 
such unrealistic expectations, both of what individuals can do, uh, you know, as individuals and, and then what a, you know, what a degree of organization can do in, in organizing people together so that they're able to function, you know, and work together to produce more than what any one individual could do. Um, you know, Hubbard sort of envisioned this idea where these organizations would become these smoothly operating, you know, cogwheeled, clockwork type ideas. But the way he describes how to go about that and the policies that he wrote, and there are thousands of pages of policies uh, to run Scientology organizations, they, are, they don't integrate well. They, they counter one another. They create double binds. They create, you know, all kinds of problems. In an effort to solve one problem, he creates five other problems, you know, this kind of, of, of mentality. And you're told the entire time, the real kicker of this is that you are told the entire time that you're there from, the, from day one, this system of administration and management is the most advanced most uh, uh, smooth running, most amazing system that's ever been created on planet Earth. And to add insult to injury, Hubbard then makes the claim that this whole system and everything he's designed as this administrative system is actually based on an old galactic civilization from 80 million years ago. And we, Scientology, Hubbard says we, uh, adopted their system, this organizing board and this whole system of management, but they had an error in their calculations because there was nothing, there was no self-corrective mechanism that existed 80 million years ago for that old planetary, you know, billions of people organizing system. They didn't have any way of fixing themselves or correcting themselves. And so we've added that division and aren't we brilliant? And so we're gonna we're gonna do a much better job than they did. And this is the basis for Hubbard's management system is is you know his ideas of what some galactic civilization eighty million years ago was doing. So that's that's the the basis of where this all comes from. By the way, that's his justification for it. To me, it just looks like he's taking necessary tasks and trying to create offices for them and not thinking about how chaotic it would be when people have to do multiple things at once. Amongst, that's exactly right, amongst many, many other things. That is exactly right. I thought, um, I thought today, because it is easy to criticize Hubbard and his administrative lack of know-how, um, he, he literally wrote a series of policy letters called the Admin Know-How Series. <laughs> so I kind of call them the Admin Lack of Know-How Series. Um, but his, his you know, the, the, the hubris with which he approached the subject was really quite something to behold. You might have noticed in the lectures. Did you notice that? <laughs> uh, I've studied enough history to be literally pained by reading some of the stuff that Hubbard said. Yeah, it was bad. Starting from his description of Maynard, John Maynard Keynes, whom I do not actually like as an economist or person, but the way he mischaracterized him was still painful. Yeah. To the description of how witches were treated, to the description of, there were a lot of historical errors there. Yes, yes. I actually sent that Keynes. 
there's a whole little section. There's a couple paragraphs where Hubbard kind of ba- uh, bashes on Keynes and, you know, Lord Maynard Keynes. And he is one of the fathers or original writers on what we now consider modern economic theory. And um, agree with him or not, it's not the point. The point was how interesting it was how Hubbard had skewed and and twisted you know, very easily find outable, very easily learnable history. And Hubbard just had this spin on it that was just ridiculous. I sent that quote also to a friend of mine who is a financial uh, guru, wizard, you know, uh, economics advisor kind of person. And he just sent back one, I mean, he was just like, this is painful. This is painful to read this. This is hard. It is hard to read how, how corrupted the truth is in what Hubbard is saying here, you know. So you were not alone in that, my friend. <laughs> it, was, it's, it, is, it is awful. And we could, and, and this was actually something I ran into now where I'm actually having a hard time now going back and reading Hubbard it, because I rail against the lies that are so obvious. And I, I was struggling when I was in Scientology to just make sense of what Hubbard said because the the insistence, the the the, the demand in the entire culture of that world of Scientology is everything this guy says is perfect and wonderful and pure, and if it's and, and if you don't get it, you're the problem. So so it was really something to spend so much time trying to figure out what Hubbard was talking about. And now I have the freedom not being in that headspace and not being in that culture anymore of way more objectively being able to see what Hubbard's actually saying. And I could count at least one really major lie or fib in every paragraph of his lectures. I mean, I started making it. It was almost a drinking game for me. I mean, I wasn't drinking, but you know what I mean? I was like, is your liver okay after that? Yeah, right. right? I mean, I'll tell you, I would have been dead drunk on page three of the transcripts. I mean, it was bad, you know, and, and, and I, it's just so, it's so, there's so many words to describe this sort of feeling that you have when you look back at the bullshit that you used to think was just God's given truth. I mean, this was just mana from heaven as far as I was concerned when I was a Scientologist. And now I can see it in such a different light. And it's just really something. Um, we, there's a lot to critique here. There's, I mean, Hubbard wrote, like I said, a lot of stuff, said a lot of stuff, lots and lots and lots of lectures here. I think I sent you about 24 lectures or something that he had given, 25, something like that, you know, between oh, it was these. something like 320 pages. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of lecture. And, and that was, like I said, purely about being an executive and running his organizations. Um. There's a lot to critique there, but what I wanted to talk about today, now that we've sort of covered the general idea of what of what we were looking at there, is I wanted to talk, I wanted to focus on personnel and how people are dealt with in that organization. Um, Hubbard spends quite a bit of time writing policies and talking about the need to properly recruit and train and post people so that they know what they're doing at their job and that they're competent. And thereby, they'll be effective. And Hubbard basically says that if they're not effective, that you have 
um, some kind of, you know, moral issue with the person, some ethical issue, and you have to deal with that. He was very, very, very quick to blame the individual. He was always looking for scapegoats. And that's pretty much how organizational problems are dealt with in Scientology is somebody gets scapegoated. Um, initially, they might get scapegoated in terms of, well, you fucked up on this, and so now you have to get corrected, and we're going to run you through this correction. And if that doesn't fly, then you start getting into, okay, you're the problem. This, isn't, this project isn't working because you don't want it to. That's the only reason, because you have all the tools, you have all the policy, you have all the things you need, but it's not happening, so clearly you just don't want it to, and that's, that's what they always default to. But, he, but he, he wrote a lot of policies that said, don't do that, <laughs> even though the whole culture of Scientology does that. So it's, it's a very strange experience to read Hubbard saying, you know, things like, you know, train your people, don't hit them. But then you live in the world of Scientology, and especially at the level of staff in the Sea Org, and nobody's really doing any of that. They're 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 hitting everybody. They're they're punishing everybody. It's all about the ethics, you know. Absolute faith in an insufficient idea creates paranoia, because Beautiful. the results do not resemble what you would expect. Exactly, and I think I think that you, my friend might have some, you know, Eastern European background in this, that, <laughs> or at least knowledge of that. Was, there was, uh, shall we say, a, a number of accusations of uh, treason or sabotage uh, from what was just bad planning. Exactly. Exactly. And as bad as the U.S. military might be, you don't tend to see them defaulting in that direction right away, you know. I mean, scapegoating is a thing in any bureaucracy, but usually it's just uh, CYA, whereas in the Soviet Union, people got sent to the gulag uh, for that stuff. That's right. That's right. And the, and the Soviet Union is a real prize example of of exactly the kind of, you know, if we if you scale Scientology significantly larger you end up with north korea or the soviet union you you get elements of both of them um you know scientology is really just microcosm of those kinds of systems of authoritarian overreach and control so so you know it's obvious we're going to find a lot of parallels in it but it's really quite something to dissect it down into how they do it and i thought personnel would be an interesting thing to talk about because there's some really, really nutty stuff that goes on in Scientology specifically that doesn't happen in other places. And, and it's because of the Scientology influence um, that this can occur. And what I mean by this is, yes, Scientology has all the same problems of recruiting and training and and stabilizing people and and getting them to do their jobs as any other organization but the difference is that scientology believes it has a technology a methodology that can improve and change people and in the real world if somebody's not getting the job done and you work them over a little bit you talk to them you sit them down you try to explain the facts of life to them and if it doesn't work out and they don't change you just fire them and you get somebody else i mean that's pretty much how it goes but in scientology they do a lot more than that because they don't want to let people go they don't have enough people to just you're fired get out 
You know, you got to really screw up to get kicked out of Scientology. So I thought it might be kind of interesting to talk about how that actually works behind the scenes. Uh, because a great deal of my time as a Scientology, as a Sea Org executive especially, was spent basically playing chess with people, like kind of like moving people around on the board, um, transferring people from place to place, uh, job to job, you know, because we had needs. We had, we had orders that, you know, certain jobs needed to be filled. We call them posts. The, the, we don't call them jobs. We call them posts. So you have a post in the Sea Org, right? It's a military term. So, um, so you're posted, Right. This is this, this is the terminology that gets used in Scientology. You're not hired. You're recruited, and you're not trained. You're hatted. You get a hat on. Every job is considered a hat. Like a conductor has a hat, and a policeman has a hat. You recognize the job from the hat because it's distinct and individual. Well, in Scientology, Hubbard took that terminology and used it for every job. So if you have a job, you get, you get recruited for the job, and then you get hatted for it, meaning you get trained. And, um, and then you're supposed to get apprenticed, and then you're, spo you know, and you're supposed to meet certain qualifications for certain jobs. And this is where the fun comes in, because not everybody's qualified, but you can be made qualified. <laughs> And, I mean, he has a thing about you need qualified people on post and you're going to have to do on the job training. And if people aren't qualified, uh, they need to be yanked off and trained. And that's right. There's a uh, pick two of three. Well, yeah, exactly. And um, and while this sets up a system that looks like it would result in very stable, very trained, very competent people, uh, not so much. And one of the reasons why is because of the incessant demands for personnel over here in order to solve some problem that's occurring, but you don't have new people coming in. So you don't have a pool of people to recruit from. So you have to internalize and start transferring people around. And as Hubbard says, you rob Peter to pay Paul, right? This, this, this sort of, uh, he, he, he liked that phrase. And he said it was a really bad thing to do and you shouldn't be doing it. In fact, he, did, he said personnel transfers were, you know, were really not a good idea at all. You really shouldn't be transferring people, which is, of course, why that's all we did. <laughs> Um, I do. Should we go into the bit about the different kinds of from the bottom versus lateral transfer uh, organizational structures, or more Scientology? Well, I I want to talk about the I want to talk about the transferitis a little bit, and I thought people would probably be most interested in the way that we would go about qualifying people. And first I have to, and, and we're trying to set the stage for that here, right? You got all these policies, you got all this stuff going on. Well, this isn't, this doesn't really sound too different from, you know, the kind of problems that IBM has or something. I mean, you, you know, you're trying to train people and trying to get them better at their jobs. But in a, in a group like Scientology, you have this whole body of, of knowledge, which is supposed to raise IQ, ra raise intelligence, right? Raise competency, raise effectiveness. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, 
one thing I remember is raise IQ by one point per hour of auditing. Yep. That doesn't understand what IQ points are. It's a Gaussian scoring system, not a measure of actual brain performance, of mind performance. Cool. I'm pretty sure Hubbard would not have understood a word you just said. (laughs) I mean, you know, Hubbard's claims were easy to make and impossible to prove. I mean, he made very, you know, he made a lot of non-falsifiable statements and and or statements that are falsifiable, but they just brush those. They just brush right through those. Right. They just like zipping right through. Um, And it is hard to debunk this stuff in real time because he's just making so many of these claims that are such whoppers. And yes, the IQ raising is one of them. This is a this is a total truth claim that Hubbard makes is that Scientology auditing will raise your IQ. And he did say one point per hour that is actually uh, valid. So when you're in this organization and you're the person who's over personnel and in charge of directing where people are going to go and this was a position that i was in as as a as a senior executive managing the churches we would sometimes have to pick and choose people for certain training or for certain positions for example if you want to get auditors at the advanced organizations to deliver the higher ot levels you need OTs. You can't you can't audit somebody on the OT levels if you yourself are not OT. Okay, um, that's just a that's a that's an absolute rule in Scientology. There is no violating that rule ever under any circumstances. So, if you have to be OT in order to make OTs, then you have to you have to round up you know the the personnel pool for you to get more OT auditors to audit the public is you have to get OTs. Well, OTs get on all kinds of jobs on the base. So let's talk about, for example, PAC base, the big blue buildings, right, where I used to work. It's about five or six different organizations that exist on that base. And as the manager overseeing the delivery of Scientology in about, you know, five of those organizations, I would be responsible ultimately for were there enough auditors, were there enough course room supervisors, word clearers, like that division was my responsibility. That was my area of control. That was my sphere. So if the classrooms didn't have enough supervisors or word clearers or the, or the auditing rooms didn't have enough auditors, then I had to find them, procure them, get them, or get the staff to, to do that work. That was one of my functions. And what this looked like in the real world is not me just sending orders to these people to recruit and train and, and let's get people going. That happened. But... Those orders often fell on deaf ears or people who didn't get the job done or didn't get the work done, leading us at the management level to have to do the work for them. Because the orders from on high coming down were this post, this job has to get filled tonight. And it's an OT. Well, you can't go recruit some OT tonight get him through an EPF tonight 
and get him posted tonight so that he can be on post tomorrow doesn't work that way. So you got to go find somebody who's already in the Sea Org, who's already in OT, and transfer them into that area. But in order to do that, you got to replace them on their on their job. You got to get somebody else to plug in there. And so what this would end up looking like is there would be times where we would want Joe. And Joe is an OT, and he's going to be an auditor. We're going to make Joe an auditor. But Joe right now is, I don't know, a, a cook. He's cooking. He's cooking down in the galley. He's cooking the, he's cooking the food for everybody. Well, that's kind of an irreplaceable job. You can't just take somebody off of that job and expect the crew are still going to get fed, right? It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really work. You only got about two or three cooks, by the way, for the entire crew. So, so you don't have the freedom to just go rip the guy and take him and put him there. You have to transfer, which means you have to put somebody else there who could quickly learn how to be a cook. So you got to find that guy. And maybe that requires somebody who's got a little cooking experience. It's not just, you know, greenie weenie who can go in there, right? So you got to scour through and find somebody who's got a little cooking experience. But he doesn't have to be OTC. He doesn't have to be at the OT levels to be a cook. Anybody can be a cook. So you go find Sally. And Sally is going to replace Joe, and Joe is then going to go be an OT auditor, okay? And that's sort of, that's simple. That's like, okay, all right, let's get Sally. Let's transfer her over. But wait a minute. What's Sally doing? Oh, Sally is a reg. What? She's a salesperson? Yeah, she makes money. Oh, well, we can't just rip her. So we have to find some greenie weenie to plug in there to now be the new salesperson, right? But it better be somebody who knows how to get sales or can quickly learn. And so now you've created three transfers. So you have this little chain of transfers that has to happen in order to you be able to get at the end of the line here, an OT auditor, right? And this was the kind of problem we had to solve weekly. Like, like routinely, because we had orders to get 20 auditors now. And I'd like to point out that those change of transfers tend to be normal in a large, highly specialized organization. Mm -hmm. Of course, usually there's more lead time, so it isn't uh, trying to yank people around in the middle of the night. Exactly. And that's exactly what we would do. Because remember, we're all one big happy bunch of people living all together on this base. So if this OT, if this poor schlep, who might have no idea this is even happening yet, right? He, he's expecting to wake up in the morning and go to work and do his cooking. And here we are knocking on the door at three in the morning to his dorm, right? Or, or rousting him out of bed at three in the morning, because we're still up, so fuck him, he's gonna get up too. And we're gonna get this guy out of bed and we're gonna do tests on him, we're gonna make him update his life history, because you have all these forms in Scientology, all this information on people. So so here's how, here's how it gets a little complicated right away. 
This guy is an OT, but he's a cook. How do you think that happened? Um, well, one of them, one of the documents was about people being sent to stewards if they messed up. Exactly. So, Bingo. Almost the oh, entire... Oh, by the way, steward is a Navy term for food service. Correct. And that's exactly how we used it. We had stewards. We had cooks. They, they, they worked in the galley, not the kitchen. Um, and this was where, you know, the food was prepped and made and then, you know, obviously cleaned up three times a day for all the meals. And this galley crew had about 10 people in it. And 10 people served about 1,500 people in terms of food service. That's about the ratio of how it worked out. Okay. And they were working in this galley that was down in the, in the lower level of the, of the pack base. So um, that's exactly right. Almost the entirety of the galley crew were busted there. They ended up there because they got busted off of, excuse me, some higher post or some higher job, including sometimes from higher organizations. So people would be busted down from gold or from Int, right, from some higher organization uh, because they had screwed up in some significant, you know, fantastic way, so much so that they couldn't even be at that higher organization anymore. And so they got busted down to PAC is how they called it. And uh, because we were in the PAC, the Pacifica base, PAC base is what we called it. And uh, if you got busted down to pack, then you could count on the fact that you were going to be putting in a few years of, you know, work on some sort of uh, lower relegated, you know, ill repute post like a cook because everybody thought the cooks were pieces of shit. It was just the caste system. It wasn't because they were. You know, I look back on it and I cringe thinking about how I used to think about people in this caste system. But that was the culture of the Sea Org. And if you were busted down to what was called estates, which was the crew, the guys who did the, the lawn mowing, the flower picking, the, the painting, the, the taking care of the buildings, or the guys who did the cooking and cleaning, that was all of the estates division. And that was filled with the rejects and the busted discipline cases from everywhere else. So... Um. I'm sorry. Um, in one lecture, Hubbard talked about having uh, estates divided into two groups, one being the brand new people uh, who didn't have a regular post yet mm -hmm. versus the uh, people who had been busted down for some reason. Yes. And we and would normally see that sometimes. they weren't supposed to be mixed, but... Well, here's how it happens, right? Is as I'll, as I'll tell you exactly how we manifested that is, okay, so here you have this OT who has been busted to estates and he's been a cook for, let's say, three or four years. And why was he busted? This is the important part, right? Because if you're going to get promoted to being an OT auditor, right, then, you know, now you're in a position of trust and, and you know, where you're going to be, in, you know, entrusted with taking care of public people and auditing them on the upper level stuff. What's that? Oh, just my guessing. It could be an uh, uh, sexual misconduct as in an out 2D. It could be uh, secretly selling materials to get some side cash. Oh, that'll get uh, you kicked out. That, that would get you kicked out. 
But the 2D stuff wouldn't. That's right. The out 2D, the, the sexual proclivity, sexual nonsense, that'll get you busted, right? And, um, and that's the kind of thing we would have to deal with is, okay, so not only do we have to do this personnel transfer chain, and I saw chains up to six transfers. I mean, there would be like this, this gravy train of, you know, we need this guy and here are five transfers in order to make that happen, right? I mean, yeah, that's, how- that's what you get in an organization without any slack. It's going to be chaos. Exactly. And then there was, but the real kicker was when the qualifications for the jobs came in because, okay, you bust this guy down to be a cook and you relegate him there. And some people spent the rest of their Sea Org career there. They never got out of there. Um, I know that, you know, I know a few people who either left the Sea Org through the galley (laughs) or died. You know, they just got old and and died there. Um, And I don't mean to be, you know, uh, dismissive or something. It's just that's the Sea Org. So, however, sometimes, you know, we would, you'd, you'd bust somebody who had already been an auditor, who already had training or while they were in their busted position in this job, right? They were a cook or they were a cleaner or something. On their study time, they went and got trained. They actually did what, you know, Sea Org members are supposed to do and started actually getting trained in Scientology and stuff and just sort of quietly started doing their own thing while obviously still doing their job. But you know what I mean? I mean, they're not, they're not playing hooky. They're just doing their study time every day and that kind of thing. And you find out after two years, oh, my God, we have this OT auditor in the galley. What's he doing there? This is a gross misutilization of this resource because you start thinking about people this way. You start thinking about them as resources or, as you may have seen in the lectures, Hubbard calls them coins. You have coins to spend, right? And personnel are like coins. And he said, and this is how you think about them, is you trade them. I got two coins, you got one, but your one is more valuable than my two, so let's do a two-for-one, right? This kind of thing. Um, this is how Hubbard talks about it. But at the at the level of, you know, 3 a.m., you're desperate to get to bed and you got to get this stupid thing done. You know, you find this OT auditor in the galley, but you find out he was busted because he pissed COB off. And that's why he's there, right? Well, you can kiss that one goodbye. He's never getting out of the galley. That would happen a lot, right? Is somehow you wouldn't even be able to know at our level of middle management, you wouldn't even be able to know the specifics of what happened to get them busted there. Was that marked down in the documentation or did you just have to get that via rumor? Usually it was, via, it was verbal, right? Okay. Because somebody who did know, who was somehow on the approval line or was overseeing this, right? Like you get these CMO girls or these other people at the, in, in the RTC offices and they know more than you do, right? And they will tell you select things that they feel you need to know uh, so that you will, for example, stop talking about this cook in the galley because he's not going anywhere. 
and I don't care how trained he is, and I don't care how OT he is, he committed the unforgivable act of pissing off COB, and you can forget it. He's never getting out of the galley. And that's how that kind of thing happens. Okay. Um, but there were other times where enough time had passed. We didn't know what the hell the guy had done to end up there. We didn't have any history with this person, so we weren't biased. And we didn't care. We were just trying to get this personnel thing done. So here's this OT auditor. We want to transfer him. We want to take him. Well, it's been five years. Yeah. But what did he do to handle it? And this is where the Scientology comes in. Because you go, how much Scientology has this person had applied to him or her since being busted? What have they done to make up the damage for getting busted? Because it's obviously their fucking fault. So what did they do to make up for that during this time, right? And you've got to find out. And this is where you get, you know, you're going to go wake somebody up at 3 in the morning and go, Hey, what have you done? What's happening? Why, why are you still there? What's going on, right? Like, what have you done? And then you've got to test the guy again, and you've got to go through his qualifications and figure out how it is that he is now no longer a threat or no longer a problem or no longer worthy of being busted. And he's made up for what he's done. And now he should be afforded this chance to have a better, a better job or, a, you, know, a, a, you know, fulfill his, his potentials, that sort of thing. So this was the paperwork we would, put, we would have to put together in order to get these transfers executed. And sometimes it wasn't just a matter of dealing with a person who was busted for something. Sometimes... It was pre-Scientology or in their history, uh, when they were a kid, when they were a teen, when they were in their 20s. They were sowing their wild oats. They were doing things that maybe Scientology now finds morally reprehensible. But at the time, they were not a Scientologist. But it out-qualifies them. It makes them unqualified for Scientology's purposes when it comes to putting them on certain kinds of jobs. Sensitive jobs, jobs of trust. Those kind of things, like an auditor. An auditor is a job of trust. People trust auditors. So if you have an untrustworthy past or you've done things that certain personnel directors find questionable, then you might not be qualified to hold that position. And thus far, that is reasonable. Positions of trust tend to care about a person's past behavior because while it's no guarantee, Past performance does nonetheless suggest future performance. Fair enough. And, of course, giving more context to this, the sorts of things that would disqualify people for certain jobs would be they had too much sex before they were a Scientologist. Or they had a gay encounter. They had gay sex. They were, you know, in some kind of LGBT situation. Um even if it was just once, even if it was Which just goes curious. to moral qualifications for things that are at most indirectly impacted by it. Exactly. This is where the Scientology judgment comes in, right? The, 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 the judging you for your moral inequities and your, your sins, your overts, as they call them. 
Um, this is one of the reasons why they have this extensive paperwork that you have to do when you go into the Sea Org or you go into Scientology is they have this life history form. It's like a 20-page form. And you have to fill out every single person you ever had sex with, every single family member you have, and what you think of them and what they think of you. Every school you went to, every disease you've ever had, every time you've ever been sick, every surgery you've ever had. I mean, this thing is extensive. And through reading the life histories of all the people on the base to, to check their qualifications, you end up learning some really disturbing things about people <laughs> and some of the crap they would get up to, especially pre-Scientology or pre-Sea Org. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm just going to say a couple things just so you guys get the idea of what I'm talking about is not just like, you know, LGBT encounters or, you know, experimenting with drugs, but there was a guy who fucked a chicken. Flat out, honestly, did that. Wrote it down in his life history, and we could never, ever get that guy approved for anything <laughs> because nobody could ever get past that. There was no amount of Scientology auditing or training this guy was ever going to do that was going to make him qualified for anything because he had fucked a chicken when he was a teenager. You know, that kind of thing, right? Uh, and we had arguments. We had, I mean, we're talking about table pounding, you know, chairs flying kind of arguments about this. Because we'd be in, these, in this conference room of the, of the CLO building where I worked. You know, we'd, I spent more hours of the, uh, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the morning uh, in, this, in this room with folders stacked this high of personnel files trying desperately to play this sort of personnel Tetris with people on the base to try to find the qualified guy who could do the job and get through all the approvals that would need to happen. Because you see, I wasn't the approval source. I'm the guy putting the transfers together. And there were other people who did this work too. And then you send it to the personnel people and they have to approve it. And they are under no obligation to give a shit about the orders that you are under. They don't care. So if the transfer doesn't look good to them, they reject it. And then you're back to square one. Except that you got, you know, all these people yelling and screaming at you because you haven't gotten it done yet. And that might, you know, and that involves its own sorts of punishments where it's not just sleep deprivation, but it's go to the galley yourself. Oh, yeah. In fact, many times, I, I love talking about this stuff because it drubs up memories. There were times where it was, look, you as the manager guy, you get a replacement for this cook or you're the replacement. Right? I'll, just get, I'll just get rid of you because clearly you don't want to get this done. See, it goes back to that thing I was saying earlier where if something isn't happening, it's your fault. You're, you're, you obviously don't want this to happen because you keep submitting all these transfers that are bullshit that nobody can approve. And you're like, yeah, but those are all the people we've got. We don't have anybody else for me to propose. Make it go right. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your problems. If I have to solve this problem, 
I'm going to tell you, this is the senior talking to me, right? If I have to solve this problem, you're the one who's going to the galley. And believe me, after about three or four times of that, I started wanting to go to the galley. <laughs> I, I can understand that. Yeah, it was like that. Um, because you would have to massage these qualifications in order to get it through these personnel barriers, right? To get the approval that you needed. So test scores, for example, you know, like Hubbard says, auditing will raise IQ. So if you have some schlep and his IQ is not at a level that meets the qualifications for the job, you know, get him into a session, Get him into a session, make him feel good, have him have a, a, a euphoric experience, and then test him again. And magically, the IQ goes up, you know? And part, and part of that is that people keep on retaking the IQ test. Yes. And there's only a few variants, so at some point, they're going to memorize the answers. You got it. Especially... If you start grading the test, too, because then you see what the answers are. And all of us were in that position. All of us. There are so many people in Scientology who know how to grade all those damn tests. And Scientology only has four tests. They have, like, they have an IQ test that has uh, two or three different versions. They have um, an aptitude test, a leadership test, and... Um, the OCA? And the OCA, the personality test. Yeah. So those are your tests. That's it. That's all you got. So any Scientologists, especially Sea Org members, have done those tests, you know, so many times. I got to the point where I could fill out an OCA in about 10 minutes to 200 question test. I could just right through the thing, you know, because I'd answered it so many times. I probably took three or 400 OCAs during all the years that I was in Scientology. So you do get a familiarity with these tests and how they work, and you start massaging them. And um, and there are and the other qualifications and stuff too, right? Like it wasn't just auditing we would do in order to handle somebody. Like let's say we got the chicken guy, right? Well, here's a guy who's clearly got ethical problems. <laughs> with animals right now it's a one-time thing when he was a teenager 20 years ago but we're still holding him to it as though he did it yesterday so what are we going to do we're going to make him sit down and word clear the way to happiness book from beginning to end he's going to read the whole thing out loud to somebody else and every time he stumbles or or messes up in reading we're going to find what word he didn't understand because clearly this guy doesn't understand ethics because look what he did, right? And we do this, and we get him word cleared, and we and he and we make him write success stories and talk about how wonderful it all is now, and we put all this together in the package and say, look, yeah, he did this horrible thing, but look what we did to fix it because because Scientology, and here's the thing about that is. As a Scientologist, we all believe Scientology works. So it's a plausible handling. It's a, it's, a, it's a credible handling within the world of Scientology to use Scientology to raise test scores to get that result so you can transfer this person over, you know, for what he's doing. 
Um, and theoretically, you've made the person better. You've improved him. You've changed him or her, right? Of course, this never is how it really works out in the real world because Scientology doesn't work, but that's what we were all telling each other, you see. So this is very different than what you run into at IBM, you know, where you're qualified or not. You know, it's not a matter of, well, we can massage these test scores and we can we can go get you to word clear you know some some uh diogenes or something and then you'll be qualified to hold this executive position at ibm that you weren't qualified to hold before i'm sure some massaging of qualifications takes place yeah but not like that but not not word clearing no because some things are not a matter of not understanding the words they're a matter of impulse control or uh, not understanding why other people might object to certain activities with farm animals. Exactly, exactly. And this was just, I'm, I'm using an extreme example to make a point, but there were, there were some really gross things that some people had gotten up to pre and after Scientology um, in terms of their, you know, in terms of their, some of the stuff that they had gotten up to. Drug reversions were a big problem. Sex stuff Freelance was a big pharmaceutical problem. pharmaceutical salesman. What's that? Freelance pharmaceutical salesman? No, no, no. I'm talking about, you know, smoking some dope or something after you get into Scientology, right? Um, There were definitely people who had, you know, gone back to the ganja after getting some auditing, right? And if you did, even once, that was called a drug reversion. And that that was a label, and that was a bad label to have. If you were a drug revert, that would affect your qualifications for things, right? And you wouldn't be trusted. If you took off, if you just left one day, if you went AWOL for a while and then came back like I had, that would disqualify you for a whole bunch of stuff, right? And there's nothing you can do to go back and change that history. So there were certain jobs that you were just never going to have. And that was true. That's one of the reasons I never went up to the level that David Miscavige was at. I wanted to and I tried to, but they wouldn't let me because I had blown Back when I was a staff member, not a Sea Org member. I did blow as a Sea Org member later, but at that time I was trying to make that happen and get on up the line to get promoted to a higher organization. I couldn't because of my blow. And there was no amount of Scientology you were going to apply to me that was ever going to change that. You know, so there were some there were some qualifications that were unfixable. So despite all all the claims of what Scientology can do the qualification requirement system did not believe Scientology could fix everything. Exactly, exactly. Another another glaring example of that, and probably the most arbitrary and really stupidest one, is uh, Hubbard's um, cancellation or you know refusal to allow anyone who had ever taken LSD, Angel Dust, or any derivative to join the Sea Org at all. You, you just cannot join the Sea Org if you have done those things. And it is an RPF assignment automatically for the recruiter if the recruiter recruits an LSD case, is what they're called. If, you, if, you, if you're an LSD case, you must not arrive in the Sea Org, right? And it's the recruiter's responsibility to make sure that they don't recruit somebody who has taken LSD. So it was funny because there was a period of time where kids 
second gens in the LA area who got sick and tired of the constant recruitment. I mean, constant. Every week they were on these kids, right? Uh, there was a there was a thing for a while where they all clued in on this, and so when the recruiters would come around, they would just say LSD. And that's it. The recruiter just turned around and ran. <laughs> you, know, I, uh, <laughs> you know, and they didn't even have to say. Here was the funny part: is they they just they they knew what they were doing. They hadn't even taken LSD. They didn't say I took LSD. They just said LSD, and that was enough for the recruiter to turn around and run the hell out of that house. So this was actually, this actually happened too. It was, I mean, I laugh about it in retrospect, but at the time we were furious, you know, we were so pissed. What are all these kids taking LSD for, you know? And then you, and then you find out, no, nobody's taking LSD. They're just telling you that to back you off, you know? So. Uh, I'm reminded of South Park's smug alert. Oh, what's that? South, uh, South Park episode. Uh, cloud of smug from George Clooney's Oscar acceptance speech. Oh my God! He's in San Francisco, end up uh, taking a few things uh, because of uh, they want to get away from their parents who are so um, obsessed about uh, certain smugness. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So this was uh, this was some of the nonsense that we would have to put up with and deal with, and. Um, and it really did result. I mean, I'm laughing about it now, but I have to be honest with you guys, uh, just to be serious for just a moment, that this was, this was weeks of time I spent on this stuff. And not just during one concentrated period. I'm talking about over the course of nine years of working in Scientology management. This was a periodic. This would come in waves. These personnel demands would come um, hard and fast and real heavy sometimes. And when that would occur, we'd be up for days. I mean, that, this, that, that period of time I've talked about where I was up for five straight days with about three hours of sleep, that was about personnel. That was when a bunch of us were on personnel. I mean, the, about half the building was working on personnel for five straight days. It was just, it was a madhouse. Um, but there were lots and lots of other times, and these were called evolutions, personnel or training evolutions, which is another military term. So these were like, you know, these time periods where everybody kind of dropped everything and just worked on this in order to fill this personnel demand. And when you had demands like, you know, we need 10 auditors on post in the next 24 hours, you're like, you know, you just know that the next three days of your life are over. You know, you're just going to be doing nothing but working on that. And you'll be lucky if after that three days, if you can get one auditor, much less 10, because that just doesn't exist. And these were the kind of orders that we would have is we'd have these unrealistic, incredibly crazy expectations of, you know, numbers of personnel to get into places and not having the influx of new Sea Org members or new people coming in, um, because there was an average of about one or two graduates off of the EPF every week. So, and they were slated already to go somewhere. Nobody's randomly just running around in the Sea Org. Everybody's kind of, you know, if, if he gets recruited for organization number A by the recruiter from organization A, 
then that recruit is supposed to go to organization A. That's that's how it's supposed to be per policy. But if we need that recruit to fit in in the bottom of this chain of transfers, we'll just rip that motherfucker and too bad. You, know? you don't get your recruit. And this would piss off the recruiters and this would piss off the orgs and they'd be pissed at us, but we had you know orders to fill, so we didn't care. You know, until the next time you had to go play, let's make a deal with their personnel director. And then they were like, oh, you, you ripped off our last guy. Get the hell out of here. I don't owe you a goddamn thing, right? So this was the kind of gamesmanship that would go on because you would get a history with people after enough time of this. And, um, and so the whole let's play a deal thing, this was just a weekly occurrence. And, uh, and it was just part of the Sea Org experience that really nobody ever talks about. So I thought, I, I thought I'd go into some detail about this because it's, it's a little representative of the kind of madness that, that was the everyday life of a Sea Org member. And to me, that looks a lot like an organization uh, kind of eating itself yeah. from lack of... Uh, lack of slack. There just aren't the free-floating people to take up uh, any extra needs or projects uh, or even to fuel expansion. That's right. That's exactly right. And because they operate on a formula of constant expansion, this is really, really key to understanding the Scientology culture and especially this, the, the Sea Org culture is, is there is this constant demand to get bigger, to grow the organization, to grow its numbers. So you need more, if you're going to grow an organization's membership, you're going to need more people to administer to that membership, which means you got to recruit from that membership. But we were spectacularly bad at that. And because the organizational structure was so insane and chaotic, a lot of that membership had been people who used to work in this organizational structure who left. They were like, I'm done with that crap. And, you know, then, then you're trying to recruit people who have already seen behind the curtain. They already know they're not going to get paid. They're not getting days off. They're, it's going to be fucking awful. And they're like, no, man, I, I quit that for a reason. I'm doing Scientology, but don't talk to me about joining the Sea Org. I'm not doing that. I already did that, you know, or I or my wife already did that, or my kid already did that. And look what happened. No, I'm not doing that. And this is the kind of thing you would run into. So, so as you say, it's sort of eating itself. It actually is because it's because it's this sort of, you know. Uh, people leave the Sea Org and then they're, you know, and then they don't want to go back and it just kind of becomes this cyclic sort of awful thing, right? Where less and less resources are available to you, you know? So it's, uh, it's, ugh, you know, and, and you wonder why, why is this organization so mad all the time? Why do they attack their critics all the time? Why are they, why is it that when you talk to Scientologists, they seem to, have this layer of smiles, but then right below the surface of that is this crazy levels of anxiety and anger and and rage and and that's this is why this is where it comes from is this is there's a veneer of of competency and effectiveness and growth, but 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 it's just a veneer 
because behind it is is littered bodies on the ground and and this and this organizational structure that's just kind of in tatters because these people really don't know how to organize themselves so they can get some work done you know and that's that's the that's the truth about scientology i mean reading through those hubbard lectures i i i've said it again i i've said it before and i'm gonna say it again i am just astonished at how undirected they are yeah, yeah. uh what the heck is an establishing officer? Are they supposed to be a, a commanding officer, an executive officer? Where do they fit in the organizational structure? Mm -hmm. All you've got is, okay, uh, any organization needs constant establishing and reestablishing and making sure people do stuff. Okay. Where the heck do you put that person? That's right. That's right. The way it worked out, just so you know, is... Each division was supposed to have its own establishment officer. And then, and then at the level of the executive branch, where the executives oversee the organizing board, you have a senior establishment officer who is basically right below the commanding officer or the executive director of the organization. And so that triumvirate, that, 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 triad, that triad is supposed to be sort of duplicated throughout the organizational structure as you build it. But, you know, the entire time I was in the Sea Org. <laughs> it can't be. No, I know. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm just telling you what's on the org board. Where I met, there was, a, there was one time, there was one effort made in 1996 to actually really put this in, to get this in place, to hire people or, or recruit people. To, to train them as establishment officers and actually make this system work. And the whole thing collapsed in a year. None of those people remained on their job for longer than a year. The establishment officers couldn't stay on post themselves. They kept getting transferred around because they weren't getting anything productive done. And people looked at them and went, why is this, what is this guy doing? He's not doing anything. Let's use him somewhere else where it'll be more effective. And the whole system that they tried to put in place just collapsed. So it was tried. It's not like Scientology hasn't tried to do what Hubbard said, but exactly as you so correctly pointed out, what he said to do is so generalized, is so aimless, is so like non-specific that these people who were trying desperately to do a good job as establishment officers really didn't have any idea what to actually do with themselves. And other than working one-on-one -on -one with certain troubled people on their jobs who to sort of bolster them up, give them some pep talk or moral support, there really wasn't a whole lot else going on there. Not really, not practically. And and that's why it all fell apart. And like I said, within a year, I mean, it was, it was wild because I watched all this get put together in 96 and I was like, hot damn, we're actually going to do this. This is going to be great. We're going to, I'm actually going to see this thing work. And within a year, I was like, well, God damn, I guess that didn't work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
And this was an international effort, mind you. This was not just on the pack base. This was worldwide. They really went for it and went nowhere. So, yeah. So they can't. So it's kind of interesting that even internally, they can't really do what Ron says because what Ron says is so fucked up that nobody can really understand it. I mean, uh, for a comparison, uh, one of the things that Hubbard says is that an establishment officer should be away from uh, the dev T. Uh, what he means, what what dev T means, is supposed to be unproductive, busy work uh, generated by miscommunication, etc. Yep. Uh, to take a larger strategic view and to be able to initiate projects, the military has the experience of having to set up new organizations all the time and deal with uh, strategic planning. Not that it's good at it, but it has to do that. Yep. And part of that is why the commanding officer isn't supposed to be a hands-on person. That's why a number of supervisors are not supposed to be hands-on because they're supposed to step back and take a strategic view and be able to direct people to do things and to observe when people are having problems or messing up. Yep. That's inherent in the concept of, uh, of a supervisor. Mm-hmm. And that's not a special establishing officer concept. It's just a, every, every officer has to be able to do that. You have to step back, take a look at the situation and not get too drug into a, a specific issue. Yep. You don't have a specific job for that. Hubbard made it a specific job, uh, whereas or other organizations, that's just everybody, something everybody's supposed to be aware of. Yeah, and you can see, you can see in looking through some of the more basic staff policies how desperate Hubbard was to try to create that with his organizations through, you know, a, a training lineup and let's get everybody on the same page with some basic policy letters and and form some agreements as to what organization is and what the purpose of the activity is and what we're trying to do. He tried so desperately, you know, back in the 50s and 60s to try to put something there. But it was such a threadbare effort compared to what happened in the real world. You know, you can read these policies, but what actually happened and how they were implemented and how Hubbard enforced them and, and how, how compliance was generated. And, and what you see is a progressive, a, a, a progressive state of authoritarianism where Hubbard took more and more strict authoritarian measures and started putting Sea Org members into the organization so they could be the eyes and ears of management and enforce compliance with his orders, you know, and this kind of thing. And starting to put an eyes and ears system and the, the whole confession culture and snitch culture. I mean, all of that was, was so much of an outgrowth of Hubbard's incompetence at being able to just put the framework of a, of a regular stable organization there. You know, and he just didn't really know how to do it. And neither did his wife. And they were both trying desperately to figure this out. And when they were on the ground, on the scene, they could get something going. But as far as communicating it to other people and writing policies that everybody should operate on, 
he just he just didn't understand. He just couldn't get it done. You know, and this isn't a new phenomenon. It's kind of a classic reprise of old things. Uh, it was noticed, for example, with Frederick II. Mm. He tried to create something like a 10,000 article legal code that he demanded that everybody follow to the letter. And if there was any uh, problem with it, they were supposed to uh, notify the government of it but they were still supposed to follow it. And the thing was, one, people couldn't remember everything. So they either had to follow custom, do what everybody else was doing, or make a whole bunch of guesswork, and that was going to conflict. That's right. And two, just because the government's notified of something doesn't mean they know how to fix it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes. When, exactly. you, when you put too many rules in place, people can't remember stuff. That's right. That's right. And doesn't this doesn't this all go back to um, Code of Hammurabi? Uh, that was actually a lot clearer than that's uh, what I then. thought. But any any legal code is going to have ambiguity. Yeah. Any set of rules is going to have ambiguity. Yeah. That's part of why you have people who are supposed to stay back and make decisions about which which way to go right right yeah it's been in other words i think the only reason i brought that up is because it's been a problem since the dawn of civilization (laughs) i I wasn't trying to suggest hammurabi solved it i'm i'm suggesting that this has been a difficult problem a difficult task for every leader who's ever existed Hubbard was no exception to this rule, and his solutions to this problem were just as stupid and misguided and, frankly, just dumb as everybody else's to one degree or another. He, he was no organizational genius. He didn't solve these problems in any way that was more spectacular, wonderful, or clarifying than any other leader in history. And in fact, a lot of what Hubbard did was copy the bad parts of the crap these guys put together. So, you know, so in a way you look at Hubbard as this, you know, they claim in the church, I mean, I have to say this out loud because one of the biggest claims of the church is that L. Ron Hubbard was fully professional in like 29 different fields and administration is one of those fields they claim he is this screaming genius in. So I hope through this series of podcasts, and I think we've already made the point, that he was no (laughs) screaming genius when it came to administration or running his own organizations. And let's be clear that Hubbard— I think you're half right. He was screaming. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and let's be clear that Hubbard had absolute control— over this organization. These people were willing to do whatever he told them to. This is not a matter of recalcitrance or resistance or everybody's just out ethics or nobody gets it. I mean, I spent years in Scientology deciphering these policies and these lectures and doing my damnedest to try to make it all make sense. I worked extraordinarily hard and so did many other people in a very sincere effort to try to make this work. And the fact of the matter is that we all left and we all go on about it now because it didn't work and it didn't work so spectacularly that it was actually abusive. 
and traumatizing. And that's what that experience actually is. And so, um, so this is, this is, you know, uh, in some of the ways as to why, (laughs) you know, Scientology, Scientology survives despite itself. Basically, basically there's a lot of inertia there. There really is the, 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 the thing, the reason the organization keeps going has a lot to do with inertia, you know, and it has a lot to do with the multi-generational aspect of it, because that's really the only reason they still have members. I mean, as far as I can tell, their new public influx is is just nothing. And even in places where it's supposedly a lot more popular, like Taiwan or or Russia or something, well, shit, Russia's basically closed it down. And, and, you know, there's really nothing going on with Scientology anywhere else to speak of. So it's, it really is this little, you know, pipsqueak operation that is just rapidly shrinking. And I think we're describing exactly why that is. And it's interesting to me that now Miscavige is going back over all this stuff and training people now. And I'm going to be really curious to see what changes he makes in this system to see how he feels this should be corrected or fixed, you know, because that's that's what he does is he goes through and he takes out all the stuff that he doesn't like or doesn't think is going to work. He actually makes Scientology worse, if you can imagine that, but he does. So it'll be interesting to see how he makes the policies even worse than what Hubbard wrote. And that's kind of what, if I'm curious about anything in terms of Scientology's future, it's that, is <laughs> what's he going to do next, you know? Going back to your Scientology's organizational madness video, yeah, the bit about how people are yanked from one post to another because there's just not enough uh, slack in the system yep. explains so much of the crazy bypass. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's and that's the problem there. You know, they take on too much, too fast. They don't, you know, pull in their flippers reorganize, figure out what they've got and maximize their potential and then start expanding. Oh, no, no. We've expanded to this. So we got to keep going at this. And this is what we're going to do. And so they give everybody an impossible amount of work to do and then blame them for when it doesn't get done. Um, I remember a a bit about retraining. Mm -hmm. And how does retraining work with all the changes in the tech? Well, that's the thing. People have been on a retrain kick since 1996 when Miscavige first started introducing all these changes. And that's been a, that has blown off a whole ton of Scientologists who just went, oh, screw this. I'm not paying for all this again. I'm not doing all this again. And this includes all the staff as well. So they've had to spend hours and hours and hours and hours of their time redoing stuff or retraining or rereading. Uh, or re-listening to lectures, you know, that they've already heard a thousand times, just because Miscavige says that's what everybody needs to do. So, um, so it really is quite something when you really look at all the layers of nonsense that gets stacked on top of Scientologists. It it really is quite something that the thing is still around at all. You know, um, with, with regards to that training. Um... Is that just stuff that people have heard a thousand times before and they just need to check mark uh, that we completed this project? It's yeah. like that. Yeah, it is like that for the most part. Yeah, because Miscavige is not really coming up with new stuff. 
you know, he revises stuff that they've got. He does come up with stuff that, that out of the archives that nobody's ever seen or heard before from Hubbard. And, um, and that was kind of exciting, you know, to see new lectures or new materials that hadn't been released before. When I was a Scientologist, that really got my blood going. That was awesome. That was, yeah, all right, new stuff, right? But that's not retraining. When you're, when you're being, you know, when you're getting new stuff, then it's not a retrain, it's new stuff. So the retraining stuff is, yeah, the retraining stuff is just going back over stuff you've already covered before. And to me, it seems like they're using retraining as a way to explain away uh, the inconsistencies that are a result of the vague policies. You got it. You got it. Anything that will that will take attention away from Miscavige's errors and problems and weaknesses or Hubbard's weaknesses and, and errors and problems. Anything that will serve to distract from that is perfectly legitimate to do or push so that you keep everybody, you know, distracted, I guess you could say. A uh, question. Uh, when a person was yanked from, say, uh, they were recruited into Org A yep. and then got yanked to Org B, yep. uh, were they still on the books for Org A and contributed to the uh, the stats demanded of Org A? No, no, no. Completely... Once you're posted in Org B, you're or Org B's property now. You, you're working for them. So, so Org A doesn't see you, get anything for you or from you at all at that point. And that's why they get pissed, you know, because each organization is, is expected to recruit their own people. So when they do, and then management comes along from a senior position and goes, yank, you know, I need this person for the good of the base. <laughs> you know, the recruiter at the org A is like, hey, man, come on, go recruit your own people, you know. That's how it goes. And one reason why that's so interesting is because there are two different kinds of organizational recruiting. One of them is to take people from the bottom who already have a background in the organization, which Hubbard did with the whole uh, estates project force being a requirement for uh, new people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as they gain experience, promote them to more senior roles. The other aspect is a lateral transfer from someone doing a similar job on the outside and going into the organization. Yep. Given the rather insular nature of Scientology and their distrust of other people, I can see why they would only promote from within the Sea Org. But uh, wasn't the captain of the Free Winds yeah. involved in... Uh, commercial shipping uh, before that? Yes, he was. He is, uh, he's uh, sort of the uh, most prominent example of where the Sea Org had to, had to find somebody outside the Sea Org to bring in to do a hyper-specific task, captain a ship, right? That is something that you cannot just walk onto and figure out. Hubbard did it back in the 70s with his people, but he was kind of around at least to mentor them. And and it, when it came to sailing, Hubbard actually did know what he was I, doing. I was I was legitimately impressed that he managed to get a bunch of raw amateurs to get ships underway. Yeah, it's amazing. That's an actual achievement. It's amazing. It's frankly miraculous that nobody died because these people were grossly incompetent and they were taking ships out into ocean conditions that they were not 
at all ready to deal with. And so it really is quite amazing that that never happened. But when it came to, you know, uh, putting a captain on board the free winds to deliver OT8, it wasn't going to be some Sea Org, you they're know, grunt. Take, they're not going to take the risk. No way, right? And they looked long and hard to find Napier. And he's held that post the entire time because who else is going to take the job, right? So they've trained up some other people on that boat to be able to do engineering work and deputy work and stuff like that. But he's still the guy running that show because he's the one really on that boat who's qualified to do so. Um, there have been a couple other times where outside professionals were actively gone after and recruited in a really, really you know, forthright manner because they had certain technical skills that they needed. But most of the time, um, they are recruiting from within, and certainly from within the pool of Scientologists. They don't go outside that pool for the Sea Org ever. Um, you just won't see that, right? They're not going to go try to make somebody a Scientologist and then bring them in the Sea Org to solve a personnel problem. They would rather take a Scientologist and, and train them up if they had to. They just happened to find a Scientologist in Napier who, had to, who, who ran a ship, you know, actually had that skill set. But, um, for example, if they... Um, they have people that they use their pre-Sea Org skills. For example, the dentists. They have a couple of dentists in the Sea Org who were dentists before, but they didn't join the Sea Org to be dentists. They just that's just what they ended up doing with them, you know. So you get a little bit of a mix there. It's a bit of a wild scene. Um, but yeah, you're you're right that they do not. Uh, they don't go for. Um, that kind of thing very often. I can literally count on one hand how many times that's happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the, th I mean, one of the issues in any organization with personnel is teamwork. How well does a person mesh with the other people they're working with? Yeah. When you yank people out or in all, too frequently, it's very hard to know the people you're working with uh, on a specific task. That's right. That's exactly and, right. And the number of transfers that occur within the Sea Org actually do make that a difficult thing. Again, there's policy that says don't do that, right? Personnel trans there's a, there's a policy letter that is literally titled Personnel Transfers Can Destroy an Org. <laughs> and you look at that policy and then you look at everything I just told you about how we actually did it and you wonder, what the hell? I mean, it's not like I hadn't read that policy. But when the orders come down and it's, you know, this order is going to get complied with or you're going to be fill in the blank punishment, you don't really care if personnel transfers can destroy an org or not. You're going to get destroyed if you don't get this done. So you get creative. You know, and and they let you get away with it because the people giving you those orders are themselves getting those orders because it goes all the way back, all the way to Miscavige. That's where all roads lead in Scientology. And he's the one who originates this and he's the one who lets it happen. And there's no way that he doesn't know what's going on in his organizations. He's very close to his organizations. He can he he has all the details at his fingertips. 
So, you know, so you have to also acknowledge that this system is a system that exists because the people at the top, Hubbard and now Miscavige, want it that way. They could change this situation any time they want. Miscavige has absolute control over the Sea Org. So if he were to issue an order that not one more personnel transfer is ever going to happen, and we are going to recruit people according to L. Ron Hubbard policy, that's how it would be. And he could enforce that order easily. But he won't. He does the exact opposite. Now and I'm convinced that he does it on purpose. I believe he does it on purpose. Yeah. And remembering that L. Ron Hubbard policy on personnel transfers to org, remember the musical chairs incident? Yeah. With, uh, that's right. That's right. Because that's how he deals with his inner circle. In, out, in, out. He wants that power. He has to have that power. Because if he couldn't transfer people around, he'd be stuck with them. And then they start figuring him out. And he doesn't want any of that. Right? So his and inner circle. The threat of transferring people to some isolated org away from family. That's right. Uh, with such little time that they get to see them is one of the powerful threats he has of interpersonal domination. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's, I believe, why he wouldn't give it up because it's a tool in his tool set to create that kind of chaos and, and, and destabilize people. You know, people like Miscavige are only stable. They only feel powerful and, and secure when everybody around them is destabilized, is unsure of their position, is unsure of their footing, doesn't know, you know, where they stand. Because then you can be naughty or you can be nice to them. And, you know, they don't know. You, you know, you as the leader, as the, as the, as the, the tyrant, you get to have your way with people however you want, you know. So that's why he can't start enforcing orders that policy be followed, you know, because <laughs> then he'd have to follow, <laughs> you know, and he's not going to have any part of that. So that's that's the it's it's the the destabilization to him is a feature, not a bug. And and yeah. it took me so many years to figure that out. Because when you're in that system, you are being fed so many lies about the system that you can't see straight and you can't figure your way out of it. Well, there's another aspect. When you're dealing with specific details all the time, it's very easy to get lost in the flood of details and lose a big picture. Yeah, that's true. And the idea that a person can step back and, and plan how the information will flow and the responses in the future, but not in minutia, can be hard to realize when you're chasing after one specific job and then you're chasing after another specific job and you're chasing after another specific job. Yep, yep. And that's, that long-term planning is the responsibility of the higher-ups. Higher exactly. Exactly. And when you're at the bottom, you can have faith that they do it, but that doesn't mean that you know that they're doing it. Exactly. And we and this is and this is also the other reason why um, Miscavige has been so destructive in terms of dismantling the organizational structure that was there. 
right? As I mostly laid out in that organizational madness video, right? Where he just, he's just taken all of the people who were, whose job it was to stabilize Scientology internationally, and he has destabilized every one of them, declared them conditionally suppressive, put them in the hole, beat on them, yell at them, punish them, sleep deprive, food deprive them, everything you can do to hurt or, or injure or, or impede people, uh, Miscavige has done to the very senior executive level of Scientology. So, you know, so when you look at all of this that we've been talking about here, just in this one podcast, you know, you see somebody leading this situation who it, it, it could be malice, it could be incompetence, or it could be a, a big bucket load of both. And I think I think that's what we're dealing with, is I think we're dealing with incompetence on top of uh, malice, you know, when it comes to Miscavige. And certainly not somebody who has any sign or indication at all that he gives even the slightest care to following what L. Ron Hubbard said to do, you know. And while we're talking about the organizational chaos, it can be easy to lose sight of the impact it has on people. And not just the people working in the personnel office or in the various orgs, but the safety of the people undergoing Scientology procedures. Yeah. Like the purification rundown. Yep. Because what happens if the people in charge of ensuring that training is done well or supervised or to identify mistakes that happen in the process get yanked out or get tasked with something completely new? Exactly. Exactly. And this was and this was ironically what Hubbard was trying to solve when he said they didn't have a self-corrective division. They didn't have a division that would correct the organization when it was making mistakes. Well, Scientology has that. It's called the Qualifications Division or the QC Division, Quality Control Division. And it is the most undermanned, underpaid attention to, nobody gives a shit about it, division on the org board. So, again, you know, did Hubbard really learn any lessons or was he just talking out his mouth while he was doing something else entirely? You know? Well, even if he did having the bureaucratic structure to chase that stuff down might have helped. And weren't there a few deaths on the purification rundown? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. people yeah. who supervised it were taken off of it during the golden age of tech? Yeah, absolutely. And there were deaths. And the handling for those deaths was not to correct the people involved. Uh, I was actually specifically ordered by OSA not to do that. To, to not be able to send any communications or any handling or any investigation of this matter at all because the whole thing was covered up. So then you add that, then you add that layer to it and it's just, it's just nuts. So. so the way I see it is that yanking people around during the golden age of tech made the purification rundown unsafe, caused deaths, which causes one problem for Scientology, but also uh, meant that people either had to investigate or be silenced, which causes more work for the people who know about it and more work for OSA. Correct. And you have the ongoing stress of that kind of moral, moral compromise 
yeah. that comes with a situation that are a result of a chaotic organization. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I will, um, I'll modify one thing you said, though, real quick, because it's important, is that the Purif was always unsafe. It might have made it more unsafe to not have competent people around, but the Purif has always been something that is no, nothing but bad for you. Um, and I just have to clarify that because it's, uh, you know, it's one of those. Sorry, I, I, yeah, I, I should have been clear that it, it's inherently risky. Exactly. And exactly. it went from being inherently risky, but with some leeway to much more risky. You got it. You got it. That's exactly right. And the mechanism of correction doesn't really exist there, you see. It's only a name that it exists. But when OSA is coming along and, and ordering, you know, that you cannot do that, then Hubbard's policies are so much, you know, meaningless nonsense because you can't do it. You know, and again, that's Miscavige and that's how he runs Scientology. So... Oh, my God, man. Well, I'm going to wrap it up now because I think we've definitely covered a lot of territory in this podcast and covered all the things I wanted to sort of say about the transferitis craziness that goes on there. And we managed to hit on a bunch of other organizational stuff, too. So I think this is a worthy addition to our series, and I think we have more to talk about in our next one. But I think we've I think we've covered some good stuff here. Well, uh, it's always fun learning about more aspects and more details about how people struggle to do the right thing in a wrong organization. Brilliant. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right, man. Uh, folks out there, of course, I hope that you found this podcast entertaining, educational, and informative. And if you did, I would ask that you perhaps consider joining me on Patreon and supporting this channel. Uh, what you guys do out there, this, you know, funding this channel, it's 100% fan funded, is keep these lights on, keep the show going, help me get through uni. <laughs> I mean, you guys are really helping me out here with, with uh, the support that you give. So if you like my content and you think it's valuable, please help me continue to deliver it. All right, that all being said, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.